Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Scott Singerman, VP of Global Partnerships at Mixpanel. In this episode, we talked about Scott's role as VP of Global Partnerships and his responsibilities, how Mixpanel is giving back to the startup community with their startup program, but also the benefits a program like this has for any company in general. We then dove into the different partnership categories at Mixpanel, the impact on the business as a whole, and how these partnerships are tied back to customer attention. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Scott is the Global Director of Partnerships at Mixpanel, a powerful self-serve product analytics platform to help you convert, engage, and retain more users. Scott started out his career as a DJ and MC for Rock the House Entertainment Group before jumping into business development at UChina Travel. He then went on to become a senior consultant at PwC, and regarding transfer pricing and corporate tax, followed by Directive Alliances, Amir at Anaplan. So my first question for you, Scott, is what is your go-to track to get people on the dance floor? Oh, man. I, I think it, it largely depends on the event. It, it's like anything else when you're speaking or communicating. you got to really read and uh, understand the audiences. Fortun- unfortunately for me, maybe fortunately, I don't know, but... Uh, when you see DJ on there, it sounds really cool. But I wasn't one of those like cool nightclub DJs that had everybody with their hands in the air type thing. I was more of the like wedding and bar mitzvah DJ that was doing the electric slide with your 45-year-old aunt. Yeah, but I think if you can get a crowd like that going, you can get any crowd going as well for sure. Yeah, that's true. There's something to say about that. I even I remember... Funny thing is, I, I started that when I was pretty young and really carried that through. I, I DJed. The first wedding is like a lead DJ by myself when I was 15 years old. I remember my parents drove me up and dropped me off at the venue um, and, and, and picked me up from the venue. So it was, it was a good learning experience. Definitely a lesson in, in humility and maybe embarrassing yourself in front of large groups of people. It's great. I love it. It's actually something very similar to me when I was younger, also about the same age. I remember I worked at a, a supermarket for the summer and managed to make up some savings and then bought like the first DJ equipment and DJed like a few friends parties and then didn't continue with it, but felt that the initial embarrassment going into it and then trying to make it like a, a career and a business. I just, I think I lost interest at some point, but 
definitely remember those first early days, like getting the first speakers and back then still having like turntables or uh, yeah. at least like city players that you could start turning at some point or whatever. That's very interesting. And then obviously like what you're doing today comes something completely different, but also related in some sense of the way as well, like bringing people together to have a good time and to do good business together. So maybe talk to us a little bit about your role at Mixpanel. What does like a global director of partnerships actually do? It's a, a great question. I, so in general, when we think about partnerships at Mixpanel, there's roughly three categories of partners that I look after. So we have what are called like our solution partners. So those are agencies and consultancies that help us go to market with our product, that help onboard implementation, adoption of our product. Then we have technology partners. Uh, so those are the other ISV that we integrate with that either get data in or data out of Mixpanel. We have a couple different sort of ecosystems or stacks that we play in, and we can talk a little bit more about that later, growth stack and a modern data stack, but I think CDPs and messaging and engagement solutions and A-B testing tools and the likes. And so manage the partnerships with those folks. And then the last sort of new focus in terms of partnerships for me is really what we call like startup program partnerships. So working with the top VCs, accelerators, and incubators around the world to help their portfolio companies get value from Mixpanel and from product analytics. Very interesting. And like the, the startup side uh, for that in terms of partnerships, like what is the role there? Is it really just trying to get the startup set up right from the start of their product and lick stack, or is it working together with them in some capacity as well? What are you looking for startups at that stage? Yeah, to be honest, this is, uh, well, one, I'm hiring for this role right now. So I'm going to wake up and think about this every day and really build the program. So th there's a small plug if, if anybody's out there. But you know, a startup program, to be honest, I, I feel like there's not a playbook out there yet. There's a handful of companies that are really doing this and investing in the startup community. Segment's been doing it for a while. Stripe does it, AWS, handful of people that have dedicated people on these relationships. But Mixpanel, as a company, we have a Mixpanel for startups program, which is basically saying if you're a startup, you're less than two years old, you've raised less than $5 million of funding, you can get $50,000 of Mixpanel credit, which is more than you're going to be able to use for a year's time. And we want to, we want to be able to get as many startups using growing their business with Mixpanel. As an organization, we're really focused on technology companies, digital first businesses. And the funny thing about startups, as you, as you well know, is a lot of them fail. However, if you go after the, the startups that come from the large VCs, accelerators, and incubators, a lot of them also fail. But Relatively speaking, uh, a lower percentage of those, right, they, they disproportionately su succeed relative to the broader market. There's an element of just making sure we get their portfolio companies using Mixpanel, growing their business with Mixpanel. There's also an element of like, how can we give back to those founders? How can we add value to those founders? Ways we've been able to do that at this point is we run workshops how to use data to understand if you found product market fit and, and, and some more tactical workshops that we do with founders. Mixpanel itself is a Y Combinator. So we have our roots in that world and they're a core part of our business and our go-to-market. And so we like to be able to, to give back to the founder community as well. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I think like you mentioned a couple of benefits in terms of getting in early and and sticking with them through their life cycle. I think there's also the add-on benefits. And I know this is something like from segments as well, working and speaking to their partnerships team in the past. I previously was a, had my own startup uh, before what I'm working on today and used segments there. Startup failed. It didn't go according to plan. I went then and joined Hotjar and I was actually the champion that brought Hotjar like segments into Hotjar. So you have this customer champion uh, mentality as well where you people go on to work at different companies and then they want to champion sort of these products to bring them in. Uh, and we actually end up going as well. The, the stack was like mixed panel and hot uh, mixed panel and segment uh, together. And I'd use both tools in a prior capacity as a startup program. I think there, there's huge benefit on that. And I think like the upsides, you, it's difficult to measure because you don't see their direct relation and it always comes through like a different company and user. I think that was always something I was always interested in trying to measure, even at Hotjar, was trying to see, okay, like how many people previously had an account with us and then have now gone into work somewhere else and that company has signed up. And I think when you get to the scale of like segment, mixed panel, Hotjar, this becomes a sizable audience as well. Uh, it's, and, and it's funny you say that and you reference segment because I'll give a, a shout out to Anand from segment who helps run their startup program. He's the one who really gave me that little bit yeah. when I was talking to him about startup programs and how segment thinks about it and where they find value. And I, I think segment tracks graduating from startup plan to paid conversion as like an ancillary metric that they, they want to know, but it's not the primary metric. And when we were talking about some of the like primary values of what they get out of the program, it was exactly what you just said, uh, which is a lot of startups fail, which is what I was getting at. But then you have these users that love your product and they go to other places and they take you with them. And the advocates as well. Yeah. I feel like I went full circle as well with the segment program. So uh, startup founder going, bringing to another company back to startup founder again now. So I think it's fantastic. And the cycle will probably continue because a big advocate of both Action Mix Panel and, and Segment. You mentioned then three other cat- well, two other categories, like the one was a solutions partner and services. And, and we're obviously talking about this in the context of churn retention. So the startup program can clearly see like trying to get in with these companies early, growing with them, sort of almost having repeat buyers, a different form of retention, but winning back uh, people from like just showing support early on in their journey. When it comes to sort of solutions, let's start with services, actually service partners. Like how are you working with services partners? Like how do you see their role when it comes to the impact they have on the business for Mixpanel? And do you see any good positive results when it comes to retention when working with solutions uh, services partners? Yeah, it's been it's been a journey uh, and an evolution. So if you don't mind, I'll give you like a little bit of history from when I joined Mixpanel, which was about two years ago. So I, I joke that I was like the living, breathing, physical representation of Mixpanel actually investing in partners. Before that, there were a couple of people that were doing the role, some of them like part-time, it was like, but it was underinvested in relative to other functions and relative to the size of Mixpanel as a company. So I was able to come on and was able to build out a team Had the mandate coming in to build out a, a global team. But when I joined, we had some solution partners that were out there, but we didn't really have a structured program in place. More so the incentives were a little bit wonky internally to be an environment that was really conducive to like working with partners or partners being able to grow their business by partnering with Mixpanel. So I felt like that was the first thing that needed to get figured out before anything. And what I saw at Mixpanel is actually, I don't think it's unique to Mixpanel. I saw this, this sort of evolution happen at Anaplan where I was prior to Mixpanel, and I've seen it across a number of different SaaS companies, but 
when, when I talk about this and I have a slide that talks about this, I have a slide for lots of things, most things that I talk about, but they're, they're, in my mind, the evolution of a SaaS company, there's like three phases of growth. And I'm going to speak in very broad generalizations right now, but in general, there's like first zero to $50 million of ARR, let's call it. And that's the finding product market fit phase. And you're just going out and you just want anybody to buy your product, right? And if they buy your product, you will do anything you can to make them successful on the product. It doesn't matter. You just need to get them to adopt it and, and use it. And that's like the full on free CS model, give the customer all the resources that they need. And then if you're lucky enough and you get enough traction, you sort of graduate to the next phase. And we'll roughly call that again, generally speaking, like 50 million to hundred million uh, in ARR. And this is sort of, I feel like where SaaS companies start to try and build that land and expand motion. So it's, you, okay, you bought my product. That was great. Now I want you to buy more of it, or I want you to keep buying my product type thing. But it turns out it, like just giving customers as much support and service as they need is really expensive. So then there's this shift towards more of a professional services model where it's like, if you want help, you can get it, but you're going to have to pay for some of that help. And just drawing on my experience, when I joined Anaplan, it was a 300 person, sub 100 million ARR company. And we, we were basically like, I, I joined in a customer success role that I'm saying in air quotes right now, but we were professional services consultants that had billable utilization targets when we were out trying to run like a break even or profitable PS business. But then it gets to the point once you cross that magic, like hundred million threshold where, and you want to start thinking about scaling to 150 million, 300 million, 500 million, billion dollars. And you just can't scale out that way with a massive internal professional services organization. And I feel like that's the point in the journey where the like partner switch flips, so to speak, because you need partners to be able to extend the reach of the company once you get to that size of a customer base and to help the internal team scale much more efficiently. So driving all of that back to like my experience at Mixpanel is when I got in, I, I saw the lay of the land and I felt my pitch to partners, like external partners was, hey, we're here in this journey. We're right in the middle. We have a paid services model. The reps are getting comped on bringing in our internal professional services. There's no incentive to bring in partners right now. However, it's only a matter of time. And I'm telling you, it's 12 to 18 month period before we get to a scale where we're not going to be able to do this and we're going to have to flip the partner switch. So if you start investing in us right now, if you start going through the certifications, if you start really learning the product in depth, building relationships with our sales team, when we do flip that switch, you'll significantly benefit from like the early investment that you made in the program. And unfortunately, a lot of that turned out to be true. And actually due to the COVID situation, that 12 to 18 month timeline ended up being like a six month timeline to 12 months. So now we're in a position where our services partners, uh, and we have a handful of them across the world that we really rely on and work with closely are driving the majority of our customer onboardings. And I see that trend continuing in the future, right? Where we have partners that are really responsible for onboarding and, and helping the customers with implementing 
but we have a, a sort of customer success team that sits over top of that, works with the customers on adoption, account health, and all that stuff. That's very interesting. I think like thinking about it in that way as well. So I'll go back to different phases in a bit, but how you have these external partners then like coming in, helping clients get set up, uh, onboarding them into Mixpanel to some degree, but then you still have a customer success arm that's traditionally their role as well to help get them onboarded and get set up uh, as well. So how are your customer success teams working with like the partners then as well on the other end? Like, is there collaboration between them or is it really just like passing the baton on once you set up your Mixpanel's problem? Like, how do you see it typically working? Yeah, so I, I think there is... It, it can always be better, right? We can always have deeper, closer collaboration than we do. But something that was, when I knew we were going through this transition of bringing partners in to really drive a lot of the onboardings for our customers, the number one most important thing for me was making sure that I had alignment with our the leader of our customer success organization, and then all the way down the organization through the managers and the people that are in the fields working with the customers. And that they didn't view partners as a threat, but they viewed them as an opportunity to give them more leverage, right? To maybe expand their expertise and their knowledge and to be complementary and collaborative with them. I, I joke and I have this like ongoing joke in our company all hands, and maybe it's not a joke. I'm really good at bad jokes, but in our company all hands, I talk about partnerships and services is like that our services leader is like the peanut butter to my jelly. We work super closely and we built the targets in terms of how we actually execute on this. We built the metrics for how many customers, like what's our onboarding attach rate, right? So of the customers that are paying over a certain dollar threshold, how many of them are getting onboarding services? And then of that, what percentage of those onboardings are going to partners? So when we get to a certain phase in the deal cycle, we know there's going to be an onboarding pack that sort of triggers, I'm getting into the weeds now, but that triggers like a Slack automated Slack message that rings the local CS manager and the local partner manager. And it's really a collaborative effort between the two of them to decide first, is this going to go internal or are we going to give this to a partner? And then second, who is the right partner? Right, given the customer profile, given the partner skill sets, the region, the language abilities, whatever it is. And so I feel like by involving the customer success team from the very beginning, they have a vested interest in the partner and in the partner's success. And so that, that's one element of it. And then the second element of it is the actual project execution. And this is where I think we're going to get better over time because this is still a relatively new motion for Mixpanel. But we have the partner who gets introduced with the account manager and the CS person, but then it's primarily the partner that's driving the actual onboarding and implementation and all of those milestones. We do have like a partner success resource that is checking in with the partner that's ensuring they're delivering, ensuring the quality of their delivery. But then once the onboarding comes to an end, it's the project or the customer gets tossed back over the wall to the account management team. And that's where I feel like, yeah, over time and with more repetition, it's going to be more elegant and more seamless process. What, what I saw at Anaplan when I was there, because we, were, we had done this a lot and there was a bit more maturity, is it was very difficult for the customer to discern 
who was from Anaplan and who was from the partner. It was just a project that was responsible for delivering outcomes. That's cool. And it sounds obviously, like you said, after repetition, like building out uh, onboarding plans and having certain structure. And uh, you mentioned as well, you go through training to become a partner. Uh, I can see really how you could see the lines being blurred then uh, and not really understand. And it obviously, it sounds like an amazing way to scale just like the services. Do you see like the services aren't being cannibalized at all? Or do you just see like there was no way the team could have scaled uh, this fast to this many people? And as a result, it's bringing new business or is like there any concerns internally around like cannibalism happening with the partner program and your professional services on? I think more of the latter where we always knew we didn't have the coverage to be a mixed panel has a lot of because by the nature of our go-to-market model with a free free offering a growth offering and an enterprise offering we have loads of paying customers so it was always impossible we never really had the customer coverage that we wanted to in the post because we just didn't have enough resources so i we really think of it more as like an extension of the services team that's providing us broader customer coverage than it is necessarily something that's cannibalizing However, I will say that when you have partners that are your sort of your primary vehicle for delivering onboarding, it can change the nature of the services or customer success role. And I think we're seeing that at Mixpanel right now where a year ago or a year and a half ago, we had a professional services team that had a lot of implementation managers and solution architects that were getting into the weeds and delivering onboardings for customers. And it was a PS organization. We're shifting that back to a customer success organization, still got the solution architects, still a couple of very strategic IMs that are in there, but really now investing in CSMs uh, that are focused on training, product adoption, account health more than they are the tactical implementation and onboarding. That was actually one of the next questions I had then was like, how are you compensating these partners and what are their like incentives aligned to? So is it really just about getting Mixpanel set up or is it like getting Mixpanel set up so that these customers end up retaining? So I guess what I'm asking is, is there any sort of staggered incentives or is it really just, this is the implementation fee, get things set up for the clients and then you're done? Or is it like uh, get like in sales, we hear as well, like previously in a few different episodes where you align the sales incentives with really not just closing the deal, but also making sure that customer sticks around. And is this something that you've thought about, you do? It's something that I think about a lot. It's something that I think will like has already evolved and will continue to evolve over time. The motion that we're in right now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the terminology services partners, right? So these are partners that are, high technical acumen, consulting businesses, agencies type things. They're not structured as BD organizations or sales organizations. They're structured really as services organizations. Those are the partner, like the types of partners that we really focused on initially at Mixpanel because I knew we needed to extend our, our services arm. Those partners right now are incentivized through just delivering, right, the fee, right, the onboarding package, it's a certain price. We subcontract a lot of those out to partners, but we also allow partners to go direct to our customers in certain instances and and put the onboardings on their paper and put their own onboarding offerings on. But I also think even with that mechanism, there's a nice 
carrot and stick. And I actually think the the subcontracting mechanism where we're really going out and we're like a customer acquisition and a business development arm for these partners allows us to create the right balance of carrot and stick where it's if you are delivering very high quality work, if you're setting our customers up for success, if you're collaborating and communicating and working well with our internal teams, we have the discretion to continue to give you more onboardings, which is more revenue for you. And if you're not doing any of those things, then we have the discretion to say, hey, there's there's a handful of other partners over here that are doing those things and we're going to go with them more. So there is this sort of like natural yeah. <laughs> leverage that exists in this model. And so much like the incentive then is do a good job to get more jobs. Uh, so you, you do have that sort of a double incentive on the back of it. It's not just the initial fee, but it's also like the repeat business from doing a good job. So, Correct. Um, and they're, they're self-incentivized too, because a lot of the organizations we work with, they're smaller consultancies and they're trying to grow their business and grow their reputation and pull down more logos and get good references. So there's self-incentive there. But the thing I alluded to is, is how I think this evolves over time is we're going to go out over the next year and and not just look to bring on services partners with technical acumen, but also what I refer to as sales partners that can actually go out and resell mixed panel in terms of buying licenses and reselling it to customers, but then also go through the delivery. And when you do that as a reseller partner, you're getting not just the services revenue, but you're getting margin on the license. And when you renew that, there's another incentive to continue to get margin on the license. So you then start to bake in an incentive of not just making sure all the onboarding boxes are checked when the customer set up for success, but customer health and training and adoption to ensure that they retain, they don't churn, they renew. Very cool. Nice. Let's talk about then the last segment as well that you mentioned in terms of like solutions partners and what do you see their role within like the ecosystem of mixed panel? Like how do you see them impacting retention for your customers? Quick correction. When I say solution partners, that's what gets segmented into services partners and sales yeah. partners. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you wanted to, to chat through the technology partners. Yes. Technology partners. Sorry. Yeah. So technology partners, right? The other SaaS companies that are getting data in and data out of us, sort of the ecosystem that we're playing in. This is another area that I really want to put a lot of focus in and improving how we're able to measure the impact that these companies uh, and these integrations have on retention, and then how we're able to use that data to direct behavior of our post-sales organization, of our sales organization, of our product organization. But actually this Friday, this past Friday, I got one of the most interesting data points that I've gotten on this topic. I've been beating the drum internally based off intuition and, and some loose data points for a while that customers that have more integrations, it makes us a stickier product and they retain at a higher rate right? Than the general population that doesn't. And one of our product managers this Friday was playing around in, in what we call internally project three, that's mixed panel on mixed panel and was, yeah, going through, <laughs> I saw the, the processing that was yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. Going through sort of product usage and, and analytics of our customers that are using mixed panel and doing, trying to surface some insights. And one of the analysis that you did was looking at the population of 
customers that export mixed panel cohorts to another tool. So an example of that is you build a cohort of power users from your mobile application in mixed panel, and then you export that cohort to, let's say, Braze or Iterable or Airship to then send some sort of campaign or engagement or something like. Is the populate, if a customer exports cohorts to another tool, is that correlated with retention or not? And when she went into this analysis, projects with cohort export integrations enabled retain at a dramatically higher rate than those that don't. Something to the tune of 92% versus 57% in the population that she was looking at. So really very significant. But then it was cool because she was actually able to drill down and see of those cohorts integrations, which specific ones retain the highest. And I thought what was really interesting about that is our Google ads and Facebook ads integrations have the highest, strongest retention. And that's really interesting to me because those integrations aren't even listed on our integrations directory. They're maybe our most neglected integrations where we ship them. We never really went to market with them. We never really ad, like advertised them because they're really like a core marketing persona use case. And we're really focused on the product manager persona. Yeah. Um, but it turns out those are the ones that have the highest impact on retention. Super interesting. And, but I could see as well, like the, the big value there is having that direct connection uh, to those platforms and being able to create audiences and retargeting campaigns off of the back of user engagement and stuff, which you get from product campaigns. And not only that as well, like we were talking about this internally with my co-founder around retargeting campaigns and as well of uh, how do you bring like users to your platform? And you can actually through Mixpanel actually look at who hasn't, logged in recently, create an audience, and then retarget those users to bring them back through different channels other than email. So like you said, Google ads or Facebook ads and stuff. So it's super interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just think how we want to do this going forward is I see tremendous value in being able to measure integration use of customers. And then you can measure that at a total population level. You can measure it at a category level. So integration usage with CDPs with messaging, with A-B testing tools, and then with individual integrations. And if you have that visibility, all of a sudden in that more integrations is correlated with higher retention. And I just told you about in the, in the previous chat, we're hiring all these CSMs that are out focused on, you know, adding value and adoption of the customers and ultimately retention. How, how does getting visibility in that data play into our account management strategy, our post-sale strategy, the types of conversations that our CSMs, right, our account managers are having with our customers. Yeah. And also from your like solutions and services partners, then it's okay. Part of the training, get them set up, get them integrated. Like, uh, And then it's another way to increase uh, retention and adoption overall. Very cool. I want to save time for a couple of questions to ask on every episode. So Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company. Channel retention is not doing good at all at this company. The CEO comes to you and says, hey, Scott, we really need to turn things around. Um, putting you in charge, we have 90 days to turn things around. We need to do it fast. The caveat is you cannot tell me that you're going to go and speak to customers, find the biggest pain point, and start there. You're just going to use something that you've seen that's been effective in one of your past uh, experiences and run that playbook and uh, see how it goes. What would you want to be doing or trying to reduce retention, reduce churn fast? Yeah, I, 
I think that's a, a uniquely challenging question because churn or retention is like a lagging indicator. And I've actually had <laughs> this conversation with our CEO at Mixpanel when I was explaining to him some of the things I was trying to do with our services partners and why that's going to drive retention. And he's like, conceptually, I, I get it. I see what you're doing. However, it's not on my radar. I can't see it. I can't feel it. I don't have a dashboard that's tracking it. So I think that some of the real challenges, especially with partnerships impact on retention, which is maybe a little bit more ephemeral than like other organizations that have a direct impact on retention. However, I'm going to, I'm probably going to cite rather than a play that I've run, and it is a play that I've run, but a quote that I really, Peter Caputa. No, that's... He, was, he was former like VP of sales or VP of channel at HubSpot. He was okay. one of like the first 15 employees in the room at HubSpot. And he built their channel program from zero dollars to, he was like an AE and he was like, Hey, it's actually a lot easier to sell with partners and convince, and they didn't want to do channel. And he convinced them to do channel and he grew it from zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue as a channel. And now HubSpot, it, I think they're probably a billion dollars in, in turnover and they're doing 40% through the channel with 4,000 partners. But he's got this quote that I've even put forward to our entire executive team when I was trying to explain what I wanted to do at Mixpanel. And he says, we've sent in the process of setting up their channel program, we've sent millions of dollars of services revenue to our partners, but we view that as a mutually beneficial deferment of revenue. While that revenue has obviously helped our agency fund their growth, my agency partners fund their growth, it's also helping our direct customers become more successful too, leading to a strong customer and partner retention. It creates a very virtuous cycle that benefits our partners, our customers, and HubSpot. And so if you're asking like a specific play that I want to run that I think would impact retention quickly, but also really pay off for the organization over the long term. When I was talking about bringing services partners in to do onboarding, I talked a lot about being able to extend our reach. But I think the thing I didn't really focus on that's equally as important is when you start to send revenue to these partners, services revenue, you start to build momentum with them and they then go and reinvest that money, that services revenue back into building a practice around your technology. And I think that's really unique. Honestly, one of the most gratifying parts about my job is working with some of these small companies and small entrepreneurs and seeing them go from a 10-person shop to a 20-person shop to a 50-person shop, all on the back of the value proposition and the services offerings they're able to build around your technology. That's super powerful. So that was a long, all my answers have been long-winded on this time. So maybe it's, 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 it's on par, but that's the approach I would take. Very cool. Um, and I see as well, like that virtuous cycle uh, happening as well and how it really played. It's super impressive to hear the HubSpot. So I knew it was a big part of their business, but not how big. So yeah. last question, what's one thing you know about churn and retention today that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? One thing I know about churn or retention today that I wish I knew when I started my career. I just, I guess I wish I knew 
how important it was that specific activities that are being performed in effort of retaining a customer, driving retention, reducing churn are, how important it was that those activities, the impact of them is measurable and and, and the ability to get more granular data on those activities and what are the real retention drivers in the business. I think when I started my career, I wasn't thinking about, I, I wasn't thinking about churn or retention in the same way. I wasn't thinking about dollar net retention and, and what that means for a having a 120% to 150% and what that means in terms of valuation if a company's at $100 million or $200 million and the difference between gross retention and dollar net retention. So I think a lot of it too is on the metrics and understanding the implications of the metrics. For me, I, w- I was going out to customers and I wanted to deliver successful projects and I wanted to see them adopt the technology and get value out of it. And, and maybe it's that earnestness that was helpful in actually being successful in, in, in driving retention. But realizing all the inputs uh, that go into it afterwards and just knowing what those are allows you to move the needle uh, in the direction you want with a little bit more clarity with, rather than just throwing things against the wall, I guess. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Very it cool. Was also a, it was also a different game though, I'll say, at Anaplan versus Mixpanel, right? At Anaplan... This is Fortune 2000 tops down enterprise sales where you get a customer and they're signing a three-year deal. So the way you think about retention, the way you think about customer value is different when you have a three-year horizon versus a a, a one-year horizon on a contract. And Anaplan also, as a technology, was really conducive to starting with a small use case and then expanding to another use case. And, And the more use cases you added on, the more value people got from the platform. So I don't think we thought about churn, like a customer is just not going to use the tool in churn. We thought about expansion and more of that net retention than we actually thought about gross retention, where at Mixpanel, very different go-to-market model, a lot of focus on startups, more transactional deals, shorter horizons to, to show customers value. So then you have to actually think about churn reduction sort of strategies versus like expansion strategies. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, the whole premise of the show is just talking to different uh, companies, different stages, different segments, and definitely like that, like these two parallel cases speak to uh, both like working in partnerships, but how the impact and uh, the focus can be completely different as well at the, at right. the end of the day. Scott, it's been a pleasure hosting you today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like how can they keep up to speed with your work? Anything you want to share before we finish today? I guess the only thing is just thank you for having me uh, on the show. It was, I, I was really pleasantly surprised when you reach out, as I mentioned to you in, in your message. I'm a fan of the show. I've listened to the the show you did with, I think it was Elena from Segment around adding friction to right, the onboarding yep. process. And I immediately, after I listened to it, I sent it to our, our professional services leader at the time. And I gave him like my readout, my notes, and my key points and things that I thought we can learn. And the same thing, you did an awesome episode with the guy from Apps, the chief customer. Ziv Pellet, yeah. Ziv, yeah. And I, I sent that immediately to our CEO. The same thing with some key points that I thought were super insightful built out. So I just appreciate the, the opportunity to be on here to speak with you, admire what you're doing. And if you want to keep up with me, find me on LinkedIn, find me anywhere. 
Uh, I'll plug real quickly, if, if you are in partnerships and, and that's why you're listening, there's a, a really good sort of industry community group that a handful of folks started. It's called Partnership Leaders. And it's the good collection of people that are in alliances and partnerships. And there's a Slack channel and they do events and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of good information that's shared on there. A lot of great professionals. They're starting to do meetups in person as we uh, hopefully get out of this COVID situation soon. So I'll do a, a quick plug for that. But yeah, thanks for having me. Very nice. Thanks, Scott. I wish you best of luck going forward and really appreciate the time today. It was great having you. Cool. Thanks, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.